Testing. Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. If I could just learn how to use the microphone, then it will probably work great. Um, so I, I think we have a couple of announcements. We do have uh, our youth study tonight, weather permitting, obviously. But if you're on the Remind app, and we are going to, if, if we decide to cancel based on weather, depending on what comes, what doesn't, uh, we'll send out a Remind notice. So if you're not on there and you want to make sure you're up to date, make sure you get on there. Um, I think it's in the announcements, but you can also talk to Drew or Micah or Tammy or any of the parents around here that also have youth. They'll be able to tell you how to get on there. I think other than that, um, I think that's it. I think that's all the announcements we have. Um, as you know, we have a ladies' Bible study coming up, so if you've not yet talked to Kelly or signed up in the back, you're welcome to do that. I believe that the book is actually $10, so if you want to participate, let her know. So as we come to Genesis chapter 26 this morning, I want to uh, kind of just give you a, a quick summary. But as we, we come, we're, we're going to be looking at the life of Isaac today. And this is kind of the, the last mention of Isaac other than genealogies. But what's interesting about Isaac is that he is a type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And Isaac, um, we get just a little bit of a we don't get a whole lot of his inner struggle in Genesis, but we do get a lot of his outward actions. And so what we see primarily is in Genesis chapter 22, where he is offered up there on the altar by Abraham. The Lord tells him, take your son, your only son, your son who you love, and I want you to take him up to a mountain called Moriah. And there I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. And there, very practically, very realistically, Abraham gets to take the thing, the person that he loves the most and lay him on the altar and say, Lord, I love you more than I love your best of gifts to me. And when he does this, the Lord rewards him for it because he says, I know now that you don't love the stuff I give you more than you love me. Therefore, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. Well, the reality is he's already told him he's going to bless Abraham He's going to give him the land, and he's going to give him as many descendants as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the seashore. Now, that's quite a few. And so he's already promised this to him, and yet it takes faith to obtain the promises. And so as God calls him to obedience once again, to trust him, even though the thing he's asking him to do doesn't seem to make sense, when he does this, he's rewarded for just being obedient. The Lord rewards his faith, and ultimately he's going to reward his descendants. Because as we find out today, God's taken these promises that he's given to Abraham, and Isaac has inherited this promise that he'll eventually pass on through Jacob. And Jacob will be renamed Israel, and it's a nation that still exists today. So the, the fulfillment of those promises are still being felt today. And so the current circumstances that we find ourselves in is that uh, Isaac is in the land that God promised. But if you remember with me from Genesis 22, where he's offered up as a type of Christ, he's offered up on the altar. It says that they depart from there because God provided himself a sacrifice. He, he provided a ram in the thicket. And so Isaac didn't have to be, he, he, he had something else to atone. And so as this takes place, we don't hear about Isaac for a whole nother chapter until chapter 24, uh, his mom, Sarah, passes away. And it says there that um, the servant of Abraham goes to find a bride for Isaac. 
which is interesting because Jesus offered up on the cross, and then after his death, he arose again. He was resurrected, seen for over 40 days, and then he went back to be with the Father. They, they witnessed him kind of hoverboard off the earth, not, not one of these rolly hoverboards, but the floating ones, you know, from back to the future, because that's a real hoverboard. But he ascends into heaven by the power of God, and he goes to the right hand of the Father, and he lives to intercede for you and I right now at that place of power. But in the meantime, the Father, Abraham's a type of God, the Father, has sent the servant, the Holy Spirit, to go and gather his church, the bride. We are the bride of Christ, assembled together, one unit, holy and acceptable, and he's preparing us for the wedding feast, and we will all be invited because we are the bride. And so until then, the son is at home waiting for the bride to return. And so we get this beautiful picture of God's future plans for the church through this story of Isaac. But then Isaac, remaining in the land here in chapter 26, we see him again and, and what happens is we find out that he experiences very similar things that his father experienced in the past. It says, chapter 26, verse 1, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So we have there, we have Isaac in the land, and yet there's a famine, which implies there's a drought And in the land of Israel, they couldn't just trust in some river. It was a place that they had to live by faith. And so God had to provide rain from the sky in order for the crops to prosper. And so there was a famine. And every time we see a famine in the book of Genesis, it seems to be a time of testing for those that are living in the famine. So as he's in the famine, he's very tempted to do what his father did when there was a famine, which is go to the world for help. Leave the land. Leave the promised land to get the world to help us out. And yet what happens is that the Lord actually, by his grace, doesn't let um, Isaac do the same thing that Abraham did. He actually warns him, verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. He's reminding him, I promised your father, and that promise is being passed on to you, and so uh, it's going to take faith again to obtain this promise. And so he says, verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So we see all these I will statements. Isaac is responding to his circumstances. There's a famine. I need food. I need to provide. And then God says, don't go to Egypt to do that. I know you feel like you need to do this, but what I'm telling you is I promised Abraham and I fulfilled it and I promised to you. Here's what I will do. And he makes all these I will statements. 
So the implication here is, I know there's a temptation to think you're not going to survive this famine, but stay in the land and I will do all these things. I will. And, and what's great about this is it takes the weight off of us. Of, of those of us that are leading our families, we're trying to lead them in Jesus, no matter where you're at in that journey, God promises that he will lead you. He will provide for you. He will meet your needs. You don't have to trust in a program or in a political party or in current circumstances or better ones. God says, I will take care of you. You are mine. I, he takes interest in the things that he has purchased. He's purchased you and I with his son's blood. How much more do you think he cares about us? We, we put value in things based on how much they cost. We cost way more than we can even fathom. He gave up his only son. How much more do you think he cares about his investment? We, we invest in things, right? We, we take money and time and our talents and we invest them in the things that we see as important, the things we prioritize. We all do. Um, some of them are good and some of them are not. Uh, but we do invest our resources in what we think is important. If Jesus invested the blood of his only son in you and I, he's going to protect that investment. He's got it. It'll be okay. And that's what he's telling Isaac here. I'm going to protect my investment in you. I'm going to, it's, it's not just about you, Isaac. It's also about your descendants. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, who is his descendant? It's Jesus. All of the lineages, all of the family trees, the whole purpose was to take us all the way from Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then all the way through the 12 tribes to the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, our high priest, the king, the savior, the Mashiach. And so all that said, I, he's, he's got, he, he's vested. He's got interest in what's going on in Isaac's life because of all he has planned. And so as he, he tells him, I've got this investment in you and I care about you, he says, I'm going to bless you in the land. Don't go to Egypt. Now, what's interesting about this is he doesn't go to Egypt. He goes to the edge of Egypt. He goes close to Egypt. He, he doesn't go to Egypt, but he definitely goes as close as he can get without going over the line. Right? That's what we like to do. I, I'm obeying, uh, but I'm still hedging my bets. I want to make sure I'm protected. And so he goes to the edge of Egypt, and what it does is it creates problems for him. Because in Gerar, if you remember a few chapters ago, Abraham had this run-in with Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is not actually a name, but it's a title, like King Herod in the New Testament. You'll notice there's these multiple times where there's this Herod well, Herod is just a dynastic name. It's like King George or you know King Louis or, or whatever, but it's, it's this name passed down. But before we get there, he, he says, remain in the land, and that's the place of blessing. And then he says there, and I have it for you on my slide, Isaac, you've inherited these promises because your father obeyed. And if you think that when you sin and disobey or trust and obey, it doesn't affect anybody. Let me tell you, it affects future generations, what you do or do not do. No one sins unto himself. But in Genesis, in chapter 12, we've already seen this. 
God made promises to Abraham. And then chapter 12, verse 2, after he told him to get out of his country and leave his family and his father's house, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Then in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so all these interactions from the past and all these revelations that they gave him. And then in Genesis chapter 22, in verse 15 through 18, after he offered up his son, being obedient, the Lord speaks a blessing over him. In verse 15, it says there, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, then blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God rewards obedience. And so, uh, back in our passage, in uh, the land here, what I want to show you, you can't see it on this map. Obviously, it's too small. But on the southern portion of this map, you might be able to see the word Idumea. And right to the northwest of Idumea is the place of Gerar. And that line on the southwestmost corner, kind of runs tangent to the corner, is actually uh, the border of Egypt. And so, here's a little better map you kind of see Egypt there in the left uh, lower corner below the Mediterranean Sea. And you see this line from where he was in Beersheba, which is the well of the oath. And he comes to the west, excuse me, yeah, the west to Gerar, which is close to what we would present day know as the hot spot in Israel, which is called the Gaza Strip. Many of you have probably only heard of it because of the news. Uh, even since the 90s. It's been all over the news because that's where most of the the, the battling goes on for territory. It, but even in that day, this was Philistine territory, which we know from the stories of David, because David famously fought one of the Philistines by the name of Goliath. And so there we have this nation that's kind of embedded on the seacoast, and, and it's a very powerful nation because it takes them years to finally get them out. We're in the story of Isaac, and hundreds of years later, when David walks the earth, he's still fighting with them, trying to get the Philistines out. And even before that, you had the book of Judges, where um, uh, Samson there was fighting the Philistines. He even took a Philistine bride, which didn't go so well for him. And so um, all that to say, he didn't go to Egypt like his father did, but he still got stinking close. And we're going to see the fallout from that in the next verse, verse 6. So in verse 6, it says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, She is my sister. Does this sound familiar to any of you? A few chapters back, and really twice, Abraham did this. Apparently, he and his wife had actually made this covenant, like, Hey, we go to a town 
obviously you're good looking. I don't want to get killed because you're so good looking. And so uh, why don't we just say that we're brother and sister? I mean, technically we're half brother and half sister. So, you know, I, there's a whole other story to that, obviously. But, but at this point, um, Isaac is following in the footsteps of his dad. And have you ever said or thought the phrase, uh, do it because I say so and I'm your dad, or do it because I say so and I'm your mom? Well, you can do that all you want, and I have a cartoon there for you I thought was hilarious. What did I tell you about wearing a shirt that says that? He's wearing the same shirt. Uh, Do as I say, not as I do. But you all know the problem with that. You can preach till you are blue in the face. Don't do the things that I did, son. But if you're still doing them, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Their natural inclination is going to do. They're going to pick up all your worst traits, and they are going to run with them and do way better at them. That's, that's what I see. That's what I did. The things that my parents condoned that weren't necessarily sinful, but they were right on the edge, I took them to the next level. To the point that I remember a point in my life where I came back from college, And I fancied myself quite, I had the tolerance built up and my liver was screaming. But I remember coming back and being so proud of myself for my drinking tolerance. And I was at a party with my parents and I was doing shots with the owner of the house. And my dad looked over and was like, I'm a little concerned. And I'm going, this is the behavior you showed me growing up. Like I'm impressing you. I'm trying to. They don't look at it that way, but that's, that's what happens. Whatever we condone, whatever we do, our kids imitate that. And many times, unbeknownst even to themselves, they'll try to gain your approval by things that you're not really okay with if you really thought about it. And so here we have a story where Abraham had made a habit of lying wherever he went to save his own skin. And so Isaac perhaps didn't even think about it and just did what he had seen growing up. And maybe you know that. Maybe you're at a spot in life right now where you're raising kids and you're always like, why did I respond like that? That's obviously not okay. But maybe that's how you were raised. So our knee-jerk reactions are kind of what our natural inclination is to do things. And, and what I'm learning as a, as a young parent still is I, my reaction is always wrong. But if I'll take a few moments and respond instead of react, many times I'll do what I know is right. If I'll think before I talk, imagine that, or if I'll think before I act, I'll oftentimes do what agrees with my spirit. And so here we have him. uh, He's inherited habits from his father, though I'm sure they weren't something that his father intentionally taught. Uh, Some things are caught rather than taught. But he didn't want to die for his wife. How interesting is that? Think about this. He lied because he didn't want to die for his wife. Now, the Christian life is all about dying to ourself and living for Christ, letting him live through us. But even in marriage, in a practical way, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as also Christ has loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? It's Valentine's Day. Let's talk about love. How much did Christ love the church? to the point that it killed him. He, he didn't, and he did it willingly. He wasn't drugged to his death. He, he literally, when they said, take up your cross, he said, okay. And that was after they lashed 
holes in his back and shredded his skin. He knew what he was doing. And marriage is just that. It's two individuals committed to die for one another. But all that said, here we have Isaac. He's not even willing to die and perhaps get killed because his wife apparently is so good looking. He's afraid of this. And so he's like, just just tell him I'm your sister. And, uh, or she says, or he says, tell him, anyway, you know what I'm saying. He was afraid to say she's my wife. So because of fear, he was afraid to die. Imagine that. Because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca, because she is beautiful to behold. Now, this is a compliment, but it's also a confession that he's afraid to tell the truth because of what it might cost him. And I would say to each one of you in here, that if God gives you the opportunity to say the truth and you know it might cost you, then it is definitely something you should do. And I say that as somebody that's been tested on this over and over and over and over. I remember when I got my last job and I was in the, um, in the interview process, I, I had just... I, I was giving my notice at my old job because I was moving to St. Louis and I felt like God was telling me stay here, but I didn't have another engineering job. And so I, I got an interview at this uh, cutting tool resharpening place called U.S. Tool. And I knew going into the interview, they are going to ask, what do you know about cutting tools? Now, I was just, you know, a few years into my salvation, I used to be a pretty good liar. I could make anything, I could... I could make stuff up and you'd be like, oh, he knows what he's talking about. And so that's what I had done for so long. But I knew the question would come up. What do you know about cutting tools? And I was going to have to say, squat. I know nothing about cutting tools other than how to dull them. I know how not to use them. I know how, uh, you know, you can buy one at a store, but that's all I knew. And so they said, what do you, the interview went awesome, by the way. Like everything was going great, easygoing people. You know, they, they had an environment that I was excited to work in. And then there came the question, what do you know about cutting tools? And I had prepared. I don't know anything, but I'm willing to learn. You don't have to untrain me about anything that I already do know. So that's good news, right? Tried to put a good spin on it, but I told the truth. And guess what? They loved it. They preferred me to just say, I don't know. So then they could train me and they were willing to. And so God reward, that was a step of faith. They wouldn't have known if I lied. I mean, till later, but God would have known. And he died for my sin. Why would I continue in it? And so all that to say, here he is, he's, he's not willing to die and it's gonna cause a little bit of an issue. So verse 8, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Now some of your translations will say caressing. I like the King James. It says there was Isaac sporting his wife. (laughs) They were sporting. I don't know if that means flirting. I I don't know. Uh, It just sounds very... uh, panache. I don't know what that means either. It just sounded right. So showing endearment or caressing Rebecca, whatever he was doing, the affection that he was showing his wife implied that they were married. Abimelech goes, you're obviously married. What are you doing? Which leads me to believe that there are some things that we do, even as dating couples, 
uh, those who are single, uh, that, that really communicate that you're married, not single. And so be careful what you do when you're dating because it's going to put off the wrong vibe and, and it's, gonna, it's not okay with the Lord. But here it says that because of the way that he caressed Rebekah, his wife, Abimelech, verse 9, called Isaac and said, quite obviously she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? Now look what Isaac says. He doesn't backpedal. He confesses the truth. Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. Isn't it interesting that the worldly man is actually more worried about guilt than the godly man? He's being rebuked by a non-believer. This is a low spot, but it's the same spot Abraham found himself in. But what's interesting here is that he, as he receives the rebuke, rather than lying more, he tells the truth. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham with the previous Abimelech, which was perhaps his father, he had lied. His wife was given into the harem of Abimelech. And the Lord came to Abimelech in a dream and warned him, Do not touch this man's wife, or you will be as good as dead and the rest of your people. Uh, the Lord went to battle for Sarah. But what's interesting is that in this case, it seems like Abimelech, because of his past experience, had taught his son something he needed to know. Hey, if these Israelite people come to you, these Yahweh people, and they say that their wife's your watch out. That could go really badly for you. Uh, be careful if these guys with the beards and the goats and whatever else, the, the tent people, come into your town because they're liars and um, they might not tell you because of their own personal gain. And so uh, be careful. So Abimelech, um, he, in, here he inherits from his father the fear of the God of Israel, from his father, probably intentionally. So look at this. The, the, the fathers of the world are intentionally teaching their kids to fear God. And at the same time, Isaac unintentionally learned from his father uh, to be afraid of man. And so we have to be careful. The fear of man brings a snare, Proverbs says, but those who fear the Lord shall always be safe. So he didn't want his people to be judged on the account of this man's wife. And Isaac, when he at, was asked, confessed that he had lied. So verse 12, so then Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. So the Lord is making him fruitful and the Lord blessed him. The man began, began to prosper and he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. You ever notice uh, repetitive words in a sentence? <laughs> he was prosperous, he continued to prosper uh, and everybody noticed he was prosperous. I feel like that's the point of that sentence. For he had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, and a great number of servants. So the Philistines, imagine this, envied him. Now, verse 15, the Philistines had stopped up the wells which his father's servants had dug in the, dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are. Don't stay around here because you are mightier than we. 
interesting. That's what happened to, that's what's going to happen to the Israelites when they are in the nation of Egypt before the Exodus. Pharaoh's going to despise them, tell them you can't keep your sons, throw them in the river, because he was afraid they were going to get mightier than him. And in the same way, if you remember Abraham and Lot, they had a little disgruntled problem because um, they, they were getting too numerous for the land they were living in, and so they had to part ways. And so God is blessing this nation, and as he blesses this nation, it says that his enemies, uh, the Philistines, envied Isaac because he was so prosperous. And many times that's what happens. If God blesses what we put our hands to, uh, people around us will see that and many times become envious. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Nobody ever pays attention to how high the water bill is. You know, there's, there's a double-edged sword of success. But in reality, our enemies typically, if they get mad at us and they can't get us to go away, they always start throwing dirt. In the 20s, in the 30s, they called it muckraking. You know, they, they try to rake up some sort of muck about you. In this case, the muck they would take, they would put it in the well, because if you're in this land and you don't have a well for water, you can't do sheep, you can't grow crops, and you can't survive without water. And so here they started to stop up the wells. They're trying to subtly say, hey, leave. We don't like you. And so as they're stopping up the wells, they eventually, because he doesn't get the point, say, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are. So Isaac's prosperity brings him envy. But notice that he prospers after he confesses his sin in that land. He says, yes, I lied about my wife. And then the Lord prospers him. Now in the Old Testament, physical fruitfulness or lack thereof on the other side was a result of your spiritual standing with God. Many times people kind of get into this prosperity gospel where, well, if you're you're obeying God, he's going to make you rich. Uh, The reality is that's an Old Testament truth. The Old Testament blessings were a sign of their practical standing with God spiritually. God told them, when you go into the land, if you'll obey my statutes and keep my promises and, and follow me and obey me, I'll bless you physically. But if you disobey, the rains will stop. Your, your sheep won't reproduce. These were all ways that they could tell that they were outside of God's protection. But in the New Testament, it is spiritual fruitfulness that's produced as a result of our standing before God in Christ. So don't get those things confused. In the New Testament, God will prosper you and he will bless you, but it's not always monetarily or physically. And I say that because think about the Savior that we claim to follow. If it was all about prosperousness, and, and, and having a home that's huge or about money. If it was all about those physical blessings, our Savior didn't even have a house. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And those who followed him were persecuted and even killed for their faith. Does that mean they weren't in the right spot spiritually? No. He actually said, uh, blessed are you when you experience various trials for the The trials that test your faith will actually produce in you patience and perseverance and character, and that character produces hope that's not in this world. And so be careful of of thinking that because you're in the right spot, God will prosper you financially. He is not obligated to that. It is something that he promised Abraham and his seed. 
But what I want to take you to, well, I was going to take you to, is look at the parable of the sower. The condition of the heart is what affected how fruitful the seed was that was planted in the ground of the heart. The word of God is always fruitful, but it is our job to make sure that we look at the condition of our heart and ask the Lord to change it. So the Philistines despised the success of Isaac, so they filled in his wells. And when the world can't stop your successes, they will always try to stop the source. But the problem with this is the Philistines didn't realize that the source of Isaac's blessing and his prosperity had nothing to do with that water. The, the source of his blessing and prosperity had to do with the God that he was serving. And so verse 17, it says, Then Isaac departed from there, and he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So he's slowly moving away. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. So he's digging up all old wells. He's looking for new sources of life. That's what water is in the desert. It's life. And also servants dug in the valley and they found a well running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the place or the well, Esek, because they quarreled with him. And then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he's found nothing but quarreling, strife and contention in this location. So he called that well's name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So here he named, he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So Isaac's prosperity wasn't because of water, it was the Lord. And so when he found contention and they sent him away, you'll notice that Isaac didn't fight them for the land. But instead what he did is what Romans chapter 12 says, as much as depends upon you, if it is possible to live at peace with those who are around you. Uh, and, and that is not something that's necessarily preached a whole lot. We got to fight for our rights in whatever avenue you see. And yet what we'll find out is that the way of peace is actually the way to favor many times. Not always, but many times. And we'll look at that at Romans 12. But why is he uh, departing in peace? I would submit to you that he's trusting his unknown future to the God that he does know. The God that promised. He says, I'm going to do these things for you. You don't have to get them for yourself. Interestingly enough, it's just like when his father did. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot that I alluded to earlier. Abraham and Lot came to contention. Their servants were fighting, and I think they were even killing each other because they were all too close together. They were out of grazing pasture. And so Abraham stands up and he says, Hey, I got the promises of God. You stink town, get out. He never said that. He had the right to. But instead, what he said was, hey, look, here's the deal, Lot. I get it. We're getting too big. We don't have enough pasture. So I'm going to give you the option. I'm going to give you preference over myself. Look towards the well-watered plains of the Jordan 
and look towards this land over here. You pick the right or the left. Whatever you pick, I'll go the opposite. He gave him space. When he gave him space, Lot took what looked successful to the world, and he took his family to the world. And in the long run, it didn't go well. But because he gave him preference, Abraham was able to go to the other land, and God prospered him there. And the main point is, is that we don't have to fight and strive to get our way in order for the Lord to bless us. Many times we just have to entrust our future to him and not pick for ourselves. And in this case, Isaac seems to be very passive. But in his passivity, don't forget the fact that he's trusting God to lead him as a shepherd to green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. My cup overflows. And so as the Lord leads him, he ends up leading away from where it seemed to be the place to go during the famine. And he dug up old wells, and then he dug up some new wells. And, and then finally, as strife and contention seemed to really quench what God was trying to do, he allowed that strife and that fighting and that contention to drive him away from there to a peaceful pasture, to a place where there was space. He didn't have to nose in and force his way. Instead, what he looked at that is closed doors leading him to an open door. And he goes through Esek, strife, and Sitna, which was contention and strife as well, to a space that he said, Praise the Lord, Rehoboth, God has provided space for us to become fruitful instead of become choked out. So my question is, where is God leading you right now? And I would encourage you, don't give up because of strife, strife and opposition. God uses those two things to lead us exactly where he has planned for us to be, back to the land that he's promised. And so... Uh, Isaac dug in the valley. He found a well of water running there. And, uh, and as he continues digging wells, he moved there and he dug another well, verse 22. They did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth because he said, now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And so, <clears throat> verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night. Beersheba was the place where his father had dug a well and made an oath. The Lord made an oath to his father. And the Lord said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So notice what Isaac does in response. Verse 25. He built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Here he gets the order correct. He builds an altar, a place for sacrifice, a place for offering. He worships the Lord, and then it says, Then he pitched his tent there. Then he put up his dwelling place. And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. And they named it, Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, 
one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. I want to go back a couple slides and show you the map. Look at this. So he's been in Gerar. He's been fighting over wells. And slowly, day by day, he's, he's ended up closer to where he's supposed to be in the land. He's left the place where Abimelech said, get out of here, we can't stand you anymore. He goes back to the land of his father, to the well of the oath he worships. He sets up his dwelling there. And then he digs, and what does he find? He finds water. No strife or contention. And then as he settled down with his tents, got all of his stuff going on, he's not bothering anybody, who shows up? Abimelech. Leave me alone. You told me to leave. Why are you coming back to me? I left you in your land, and now you're coming to mine. Why is that? Well, let's read on. It says there, if I can find my verse. Isaac said to them, verse 27, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, And since we have done nothing to you but good, I kind of laugh at that, right? We haven't done anything to harm you. I mean, we filled in your wells and, you know, sent you away. And we have sent you away in peace. (laughs) Did they send him away in peace? Or did he depart on his own in peace? You are now the blessed of the Lord. And so he made them a feast and they ate and drank And then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. So Isaac is minding his own business. Isaac is using his own will. Isaac has gone back to his roots. And as he's there, his enemy approaches him with the commander of his army, mind you. And while he's there, the men come back and instead of saying, you need to go farther or why don't you come back, what they say to him is, what we've noticed is that God is with you. We can witness that very fact. And my question would be, how did they notice that God was with them? How did the the command, how did Abimelech and Phicol recognize that God was with them? And I believe that the answer is in what they notice, that they departed in peace that they didn't fight and strive with them. I say that because some of the things that we think that we need to do or say in order for people to see Jesus are exactly the opposite. I went out to Utah this week. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I went to Utah this week to visit with a friend of mine who we support. He's a church planter in Logan, Utah. And in this valley, there are 151,000 citizens. It's like a valley like ours. It's beautiful, but it's way bigger. There's 151,000, and there are less than 1,000 Christians. All of the rest of them are culturally or spiritually Mormon, Latter-day Saints. They use all the same terminology. Uh, If someone asks you there, are you a Christian? You say, yes, but I'm not LDS because there's a distinction. And many of them don't even know that. But while you're out there, 
While I was out there, I was speaking with Seth, who is the guy that's going out there to plant a church. He's been there for three years. And the things that pique the interest of the Mormons are interesting to me. And one of them, because they all have Mormon friends, because that's all that's there. um, One of the things that struck me is that um, his wife, when he got together with a group of ladies, one of them had a need. And so she said, can I pray with you? And when she was praying, she was actually praying contritely with a broken heart. And she actually prayed during her prayer because it came up in her mind. She was confessing sin that she had dealt with that day. She was broken over her sin. And so as Beth, the wife of Seth, these two Christians that are there, she's praying with someone over a circumstance they needed prayer for. But then in the middle of her prayer, recognizing that God won't hear my prayer if I'm not honest with him, she confessed her sin while she was praying. She gets done praying, and the lady she just got done praying with goes, I've never heard anybody pray like that before. And it wasn't so much that she hadn't heard somebody pray out loud. It was that she hadn't heard somebody pray about brokenness over their own sin. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many of them that would hear contriteness or brokenness over sin and go, see, I told you those evangelicals. (laughs) I told you we were better than them. But what this lady was recognizing was that there, if I've got a weight of sin on me. In my religion, I don't have anywhere to go with that. I've got to act like everything's fine. But it seems like in their Christianity, in their relationship with Jesus, there's a place to go and get forgiveness. There's a, a place to go and get that burden removed. And the other thing that I noticed is that the thing that blew away some of their LDS friends was that when when other Christians would come there to encourage them. They said, you mean people flew from a different state to come encourage you in your faith and in what God's called you to do? They're like, yeah, that's amazing. When they come, can we host your gatherings at our house? We would love to have you over because we've never seen anything like that which made me think of what I believe is written in 1 John, that they'll know that you are Christians by your love for one another. So if you want to make a big splash, by the way, even in our culture, stop fighting with other Christians about petty doctrines. Love them well. And then the other thing is, be broken over your own sin and confess it one to another. Because when you'll do that, people will see Jesus even brighter than you think than if you got up on a soapbox and preached in the, in the market square. They will see Jesus. And so all that to say, Isaac has favor with his enemies because of his willingness to be a peacemaker. He builds an altar. He pitches his tent. He digs a well. And God provides But notice also, how did Isaac treat his enemies? They came to him and said, hey, we notice God's with you. We want to make a covenant with you. And what does Isaac do with his enemies that sent him a day's walk away? He makes them food and has them over for dinner. He feeds them. (laughs) This is Jesus. (laughs) Jesus feeds his enemies. Jesus dies for his enemies. Jesus speaks to his enemies peaceably. Romans chapter 12, as we close. I like this because in Romans chapter 12 in my Bible, starting in verse 9, 
the heading says, behave like a Christian. I like that. How am I supposed to live as a Christian? Uh, Read Romans 12. Steve likes it so much, he covered a whole wall in his house with it. He wants to remember it. So in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse uh, 9, here's what it says about behaving like a Christian. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, give preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Be given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. That's what Isaac's doing. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. All means all. If possible, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men. If it is possible, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that as you have called us out of the darkness and into the light, we could obviously give excuses. Well, I can't help it. This is how I was raised. But as believers, we've been called to be discipled and to follow the example of our Savior. And so, Father, in the ways that I have not done that, I confess to you that I'm sorry. Forgive me when I consider myself or get on my own agenda and don't love people the way that you do. Forgive me when I talk about things that I ought not or look at people in a critical way. Father, would you make us, make me a person that reflects not only the character and the salvation of the Lord, but the attitude of Christ Jesus. Thank you for paving the way. Thank you for showing us, Jesus, the heart of the Father. Pour out your Holy Spirit and help us to be obedient in the small things. And Lord, we know you're going to do amazing things through those. Would you move mountains? Would you open the eyes of our enemies? Would you help those who are enemies of yours to see the goodness of God in the way that we behave? In Jesus' name, amen.